Welcome, everybody. I am Dracula. Actually, I'm Richard Krause, and that was Bela Lugosi and one of the most famous lines from horror movie history. Now, do you like being scared? Because I sure do. A Saturday matinee screening of Paranormal Activity was the first, and I think only time, that I've ever heard anyone actually scream in a theater. And I don't mean one of those quiet little whimpers followed by an embarrassed laugh or a frightened little squeal. No, I mean a full-on, open-throated howl of terror. So Halloween is around the corner, and I'm thinking about the other leave-the-lights-on movie moments that I've seen. If Alfred Hitchcock had any doubts about the effectiveness of the shower scene, for instance, in Psycho, they must have been put to bed when he received an angry letter from a father whose daughter stopped bathing after seeing the bathtub murder scene in Les Diaboliques and then, more distressingly, refused to shower after seeing Psycho. Hitch's response to the concerned dad? Send her to the dry cleaners. The shower scene was terrifying, but at least it was allowed to stay in the movie. In 1931, Frankenstein star Boris Karloff demanded the scene in the movie where the monster plays with the little girl throwing flowers in a pond be cut from the picture. It's a cute scene until the beast runs out of flowers and tosses the little girl into the water, leaving her to drown. Karloff and audiences objected to the violence against the youngster, and the scene was shortened, then removed altogether, and remained unseen until a special videotape release 48 years later. The Exorcist so traumatized audiences with shots of a possessed Regan O'Neill's 360-degree head spinning that in the UK, the St. John's Ambulance Brigade were on call at screenings to tend to fainters. Star Linda Blair says she wasn't traumatized by the film, though, but admits it has one long-lasting side effect. You wouldn't believe how many people asked me to make my head spin around, she says. Blair may have been unfazed while shooting her gruesome scenes, but not all actors emerge unscathed. Alicia Cuthbert was so grossed out while shooting the notorious hand-in-a-blender scene in the down-and-dirty flick Captivity, she says she felt physically ill twice and had to have a bucket nearby. Ugh, yuck. Scary scenes, one and all. Every one of them. But recounting them begs the question, why are we drawn to them? The quick answer comes from master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. Good evening. He said, people like to be scared when they feel safe. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but feeling scared when you are safe is a rush. And that's what my guest today will provide. There's lots to come. Later, we'll chat with Daniel Radcliffe about his first post-Harry Potter film, a creepy gothic horror movie called The Woman in Black. But before we get to Daniel, let's meet Ainsley Hogarth, author of Mother Thing, a darkly comedic novel about a woman who must take drastic measures to save her husband and herself from the vengeful ghost of her mother-in-law. Ainsley Hogarth joined me via Zoom. So what was it about writing that appealed to you originally? If I'm being perfectly honest, I was good at it from a young age. You get a lot of like praise for the things that you're good at. Likely that was a big part of it is just, you know, having a kind of knack for it. And then also just loving to read. I really obviously 
love to read. I've always loved to read, really love movies, watched a ton of movies. Yeah. And just, I love stories. Um, and I, yeah. And I love to, I love to create them and I really love as much as I love, like, I love the people who make my favorite movies and my favorite books. And I guess I probably just wanted to be like that. <laughs> and what are some of those favorite movies and books? I do love Stephen King. I've always loved Stephen King. I actually do love Flowers in the Attic. <laughs> um, but I think That's I'm only the guilty the pleasure that everybody has. I think Flowers in the Attic. Good. <laughs> I don't know why it's so good. Um, let's see. And yeah, a lot of horror movies. I love horror movies. I love um, Rosemary's Baby is a favorite of mine. Um, the Shining is a favorite of mine. Um, yeah, I've always I've always quite liked, I guess, more disturbing. And why, why so? Do you think, and this is my theory, I think that we like to feel safe uh, when we're scared. So if you're at home watching a movie on your television or in a theater, you're pretty sure that the monster is not going to leap off the screen and come at you, but you still get that dopamine rush. Is that what it is for you? Probably on uh, like uh, an unconscious level. I'm certain that that's exactly what it is. Um, on a more conscious level, what I like about horror is I really like the feeling a big reaction to something. Um, and I feel as though with comedy, um, which my other thing is also, you know, a comedy as much as it's a horror novel and with horror, it's hard, they're harder to earn than, uh, than like tears. Like I can cry pretty easily at anything. Like it's like not that hard to show me like a sad looking puppy and I'm like almost there. You're listening to Ainsley Hogarth on the Richard Krauss show. Her new novel, Mother Thing, is available wherever fine books are sold. Where did the idea of a vengeful ghost in the form of a mother-in-law come from? She sort of just happened. I was very interested in stories about people who go crazy together. Shared madness, it's called. And uh, this isn't the story of the book, but a lot of a lot of cases of shared madness are people that like couples who murder together, you know, like those kinds of crazy stories. And I guess what I really wanted to investigate or what I really wanted to write about and like sort of document was that process of two people kind of going insane together, sort of that infectious sort of insanity. Right. Um, so that's what it started with. The mother-in-law, yeah, she just sort of appeared in the book. And I guess, I don't know, I guess moms do make people crazy. So maybe that's where she came from. I don't know. Like, so she, it's hard, really hard for me to say where the mother-in-law came from, but that's where the kind of idea came from. So maybe a mother-in-law is like a easy leap from that. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there are thousands of mother-in-law jokes and they never oh, yes. work out well for the mother-in-law, I guess. Right. No. So, uh, she says she'd rather see her son dead than alive with you. That's a striking statement <laughs> to come out yes. of any character's mouth, let alone a mother's mouth. And yeah. I think that's what has really grabbed people uh, about this book is that it does, it's very funny by times, but it also goes to some very dark places. Yeah, it does. It really does. I mean, like you said, there's mothers-in-law are, I mean, there's the term like monster-in-law. Like yeah. it's it's a really common um, thing to sort of have like negative feelings about your mother-in-law have a bad relationship there. And so, yeah, I guess it's sort of like that feeling of, I, I don't know, I guess mothers-in-law, that feeling of being replaced, of being, I don't know. I don't really know why it's such a contentious uh, relationship. There's a lot of subtext in here. There's a lot of quite juicy subtext in here, <laughs> uh, but it's about the nature of grief and how when someone is gone, 
physically gone, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are out of your life. They still yeah. take up space in your head uh, very much. And I think that's something that people uh, will relate to about this book, even though the the subject of the book is is supernatural. I, I, I think there's a real basis in truth for it. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're absolutely grief. Is, it haunts you like that's that is sort of what it does. And it's relentless the way that, you know, ghosts are depicted. There's a really great horror movie about grief called the, the Babadook. It's very popular. I'm not sure if you've seen it before. Yeah. Uh, and like, I've never, I've never seen grief depicted so well as uh, in the form of the Babadook. It's really poignant. When you start a book like this, do you know where it's going to go? I don't. You're shaking no. your head no. Yeah. I really don't. I wish I could, I wish I could plot better, um, but I really can't. And um, anytime I try, I immediately deviate. I don't know. As soon as I have to have the plan, I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that. That's just, that's not happening. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about uh, Abby. She's the main character of the book. She's tormented to a certain extent. She was abused uh, by her own mother, but she loves her husband very much. And so she's a a balance of someone who's dealing with the past, looking to the future and trying to make a different future. But then there's a, you know, there's things that are happening. I don't want to give anything much away, but things happen that sort of prevent that for her. So tell me about creating her. How did Abby come to be? A way that I've described it before is she's sort of like a lightning rod um, for like the the bad intel that like women pass down to their daughters and granddaughters about being a woman, essentially. What I wanted to do with Abby is I wanted to have a character who wanted so badly to do everything right, but just for the life of her can't do it. So she's, she's constantly just misinterpreting things, misinterpreting situations, but also she like quite chronically misinterprets like advertising, for example. Um, like she, she just can't fit into be like sort of the stereotypical woman, which in her mind, like that's, uh, she lauds the, the sort of stereotypical woman. And she refers to that type of woman as a, a yogurt woman. So like a woman who just like, you know, enjoys yogurt and <laughs> that's what they're all Those about. which yogurt to buy and all of that stuff yeah exactly don't get the one with too much sugar yeah. no certainly not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that was kind of abby she's just like just not can't be a yogurt woman as much as she wants to be <laughs> <laughs> now is this in your mind a psychological thriller or is it a horror novel or how do you how do you categorize it or do you want to categorize it i kind of see it as a love story because I guess when I was writing it what I focused on most was you know Abby and Ralph and their dynamic and I really love their dynamic as much as it's it is a psychological horror like I do think that I do love I love them and I love them together um even though they're obviously not not great for each other uh yeah so I honestly I would categorize it as a love story and then like a horror comedy if I had to compare it to something, I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure you're, you've seen The Fly. Um, and that is to me, like <clears throat> the relationship between um, Gina Davis and uh, Jeff Gold, Goldblum, One, like the best part about that. Like, and then, and then going like hard on like the, the body horror and the like, you know, he's like pulling his fingernails off and it's so disgusting, but it's just like, you're also just so invested in that relationship. So if I had to compare it to anything, I would like, humbly compare it to to the fly because that's kind of what I love about the fly is what I tried to make happen in this book. That was Ainsley Hogarth on the Richard Krauss show. Her book mother thing is available right now, wherever fine books are sold. (laughs) 
If it is true that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, well, David Cronenberg must be basking in the reflected glow of some pretty serious film fawning. The OG of body horror's influence can be seen in lurid detail in recent movies like the Palm Door winner Titane and Natalie Portman's biological thriller Annihilation, among many others. The director of Eastern Promises, A History of Violence, The Fly, and Videodrome, among many others, returns to theaters after an eight-year break with Crimes of the Future, an all-star story of eroticized human evolution starring Christian Stewart, Viggo Mortensen, and Leah Seydoux. Sharing a name with the movie the director made in 1970 and based on a script he wrote in the early 2000s, Crimes of the Future takes place at a time when accelerated evolution syndrome has all but eliminated pain in most humans. The world is a much more dangerous place now that pain has all but disappeared. I don't like what's happening with the body. In particular, what's happening with my body. Which is why I keep cutting it up. Guide us, Creator. That will guide us into the heart of darkness. David Cronenberg joined me via Zoom. This script has been uh, percolating for 20 years. You wrote it uh, two decades ago developed it to an extent, walked away from it. What made you revisit? Because a lot of the ideas that are in this film about body morphing and 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 uh, how we are adapting to a climate that's changing around us uh, and our bodies are just going to have to evolve, didn't exist in the same way 20 years ago as they do today. Some of the things in this perhaps 20-year-old ideas that you had are very prescient for today. So was that what made you go back or, or why, well, it, why it, go back? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, um, it was really Robert Lantos. You know, we, we had tried to get the movie made years ago. And I think at a certain point, I just lost interest and was offered History of Violence. And I thought, yeah, I wouldn't mind trying that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, because I hadn't done something like that before. And uh, so I just kind of let it lapse. And, and uh, I think Robert never lost his enthusiasm for it as I had. Um, it wasn't developed though, it, because it, there was one draft. Mm. First draft, I never wrote a second draft and I didn't change it at all when we shot. It, it wasn't, I didn't change a word. So the only changes that happened were the normal production changes like okay we're shooting in Athens not Toronto so that means different things will happen um, for me there's always the wonderful possibility of found art which is to say uh, things that you never expected show up and you should use them you should not be afraid to embrace them so for example the very first shot in the movie is a ship on its side and you know, it kind of a derelict huge ship uh, we, we, I discovered it while looking for a location. And I thought, this is, I said to the locals, what is this ship? They said, oh, it's been there for 20 years, you know. <laughs> so that was Athens' gift to me. Uh, and, and I thought, well, I have to have that. And then later we discovered the, the boat, the ship cemetery, which I shot a bunch of other scenes at with, with Figo and uh, Welkut Bunge. 
and uh, and that just that was a bunch of ships that had been confiscated because they had been running drugs and there were court cases and so those ships were just decaying also, and I thought this is too good you know because it really suggests uh, the decay of a society that at one point had industry happening and trade happening and now all of that was in decline it didn't exist um, so that that's really but. It was ultimately Robert Lantos saying to me, you know, you should, I had sort of said, I, I, I think I'm going to write another novel and not make movies anymore. I just can't, the aggravation is too much. <laughs> and he said, uh, um, have you read that old script of yours? Um, and I said, no, I'm sure it's completely irrelevant now because it's, you know, it was sci-fi and technology has moved on and blah, blah. And he said, no, no, it's more relevant than ever. <laughs> So I thought, okay, that's a very good line. Uh, okay, I'll read it. And I read it and I said, he's right also. And also I thought it was pretty good. You know, I thought it was well-written and funny and, and also sad and a bunch of other things. And so that's really, it still took him three years to get the financing from that moment. And that's how complex it was. You're listening to David Cronenberg on The Richard Krause Show. Find his movie, Crimes of the Future, wherever you legally download and buy movies. It's a really interesting, thought-provoking movie. But one thing that I didn't think it would be is funny. So I had to ask him about that. Was that important for you to balance the the, the bleakness of some of the ideas in this story with some lightness just a, as a counterbalance? Well, that suggests that I'm a very sensible, rational <laughs> craftsman. <laughs> In fact, I just write stuff. And obviously, uh, for me, I mean, without humor, you don't survive. So for me, it's, it's just a no-brainer to have humor in my movies. I mean, I often say that all of my movies are comedies. Well, of course, I, I don't really mean it literally, but... What I really mean is they all have serious humor in it, in them. And part of it is just because even in the most dire circumstances, there is humor and one needs it to survive. So it, it came naturally. I, I wasn't really trying to find a balance. Obviously you can subvert your movie with humor that comes in the wrong place at the wrong time, the wrong kind of humor. Of course, I would naturally hope to avoid that, but, uh, uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever written a script that didn't have some laughs, let's put it that way. And then it was interesting in Cannes because the only move, the only uh, line of dialogue that got a big laugh, a big unrestrained laugh was Vigo saying, I'm not very good at the old sex. Yeah. But uh, talking to people, they said, no, they wanted to laugh. They just weren't sure if they were allowed to, you know, because yeah. you're wearing your tux and you're wearing your ball gown and whatever, <laughs> your high heels. And can, are you supposed to laugh at this movie the, from the returning master of horror? You know, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, so um, so I think the laughs should hold. They should be there for everybody, really. You mentioned Viggo Mortensen. It's your fourth film with him. Uh, it's a, a partnership that works uh, so well. This is a very different role, though, than you have cast him in before. Well, he originally wanted to play Cope, the cop. Right. Um, it just because it was sort of a perverse thing that in that in in a, you know he's played undercover cops in other movies including my own uh, Eastern Promises not exactly a cop but a, you know and and uh, History of Violence uh, 
and so he thought in this movie it would be kind of interesting to play the 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 bad guy up front bad guy you know the representative of the repressive society but i eventually talked him into i talked him into reason and said, <laughs> and, and basically that for him Saul Tenser would be a much more interesting role and more complex and quite different you know this is the although we had done three movies before they were all scripts written by somebody else not me this is my first original script that he had acted in and uh and therefore a character unlike any that he actually ever played part of it is just because Vigo is very dashing you know he has a charisma he has a dynamism he has a macho thing uh, as well as a sensitivity and that makes him a natural for the kind of roles that you were talking about this is though very strange we we, we talked about it a lot it's this this is how do you act a reactive role that's got to be quite different from the sort of the the, the actual protagonist who mm. makes things happen i just came across a term that i never heard before maybe you have that your fans are called cronin heads i have never heard that i have never heard that either until like twitter today you have to pop you know i don't know if i like that <laughs> but listen i didn't invent body horror either that's not my phrase i never i never used that term and i actually don't think it's quite accurate but i of course it sticks because it's kind of you know it's snappy and stuff but uh so cronin heads no that's a new one <laughs> all right david well thank you so much for taking the time i know these are long days and you've been doing a lot of talking but i very much appreciate it well, it's fun to talk to you, Richard. Thank you very much. That was David Cronenberg on his film, Crimes of the Future, on The Richard Krause Show. In this segment, we go back to the vault to find an interview I did with Daniel Radcliffe the night after I hosted the Canadian premiere of his first post-Harry Potter movie, a brooding gothic horror film called The Woman in Black. In the film, Daniel plays a recently widowed lawyer who's grieving the loss of his wife when he's sent to a remote village on business. Once there, he discovers his client's house is haunted by the spirit of a woman who is trying to find someone or something that she lost and that no one is safe from her wrath. Here's Daniel Radcliffe on Woman in Black. There are certain moments in the film that I, I love and I find really creepy and, and sometimes get no reaction. It's interesting because the, the first Woman in Black that you see in the film, I don't think has been picked up on on either premiere. It's a really, really subtle moment where I'm, I'm in the foreground and then and just in the background you just see this shape suddenly just turns and you see the whiteness of the face. Um, that hasn't been picked up on yet. Um, that uh, also the um, the moment where the eyes are suddenly scratched out of the painting uh, out of the photo, I find that very very creepy and um, and and again so far kind of that. But but also that's not a that's not a moment where you'd hear the reaction as well. It was interesting last night because normally I sit a lot further back at premieres and you can really sense both you hear it but also seeing it you can see people react to stuff as well you get a sense of that and I was a lot further forward last night so I could only see the three rows in front of me were very very responsive and reactive to the film um, I, and I can only assume but that behind me was as well the way you can always tell actually is because um, it's because often um, the the uh, 
moments of like a, a jump moment in the film is um, comes often with quite a heavy sound cue right. so it's hard to he- I couldn't hear the screams but what you right. could hear last night was the laughs afterwards yeah. because afterwards everyone has this nervous laugh of re- the release of tension and so as long as you know you're getting that then you know you're you must be getting the good reaction during afternoon tea there's a shift in the air a bone trembling chill that tells you she's there There are those who believe the whole town is cursed, but the house in the marsh is by far the worst. Whenever she's been seen, something horrible happens. What she wants is unknown, but she always comes back. The specter of darkness. The woman in black. You must have gotten sackfuls of scripts, truckloads of scripts. So why was this one different? Why did this one stick out as the first big project post-Potter? I think because it was... One of the things that made it really stand out was that it was a genre movie, but that it was unusual for its genre. Um, that, you know, nowadays we're, we're kind of saturated with the kind of uh, gory, gratuitous, um, upsetting, visually kind of films. Um, but... Uh, but you know this is all about suspense and what you don't see and it's and James our director lets you know really lets the tension build and is is very you know that's very important um so yeah it was, I spoke but the main the main thing about it was just the story the story was really classic and very chilling and uh, and and really scary and I wanted to be a part of telling that story I'm not surprised that you would choose something that feels like a classic piece uh, because last night when we were chatting backstage, you were rattling off film titles, which I might not necessarily have expected from a young man. Someone, you know, so clearly you must have a lot of Blu-rays and must have a big DVD collection. And, and you, you really gravitate, it seems to me, towards classic British cinema or classic cinema in yeah, general. I think so. I mean, I love, I love when, before we got, before you know, and I know that I, I do see the irony of me saying this, having been in a, such a huge visual effects franchise. But before we got kind of hooked on the the the, the, the that um, visual effects was the way of achieving things. You know, I love a matter of life and death because it achieves so much and so and is one of the most visually impressive, imaginative films ever. And you know, they didn't have visual effects. What I love is when the um, when when the frame freezes and you know you can still see the actors just yeah. moving <laughs> slightly and it, but that but it doesn't matter because it's a film and you suspend your disbelief and you don't care and you know I mean my, the scariest visual effects ever are uh, were, for me were the skeletons in Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. You're listening to Daniel Radcliffe on the Richard Krauss show. Find his movie Woman in Black on your favorite streaming service. You know that like Ray Ray Harryhausen is. Oh God! And is and I was talking to actually funny enough when I did Saturday Night Live, I was talking to Bill Hader, who said he was at Comic Con one year, and like there was this huge queues of people for all this, and then at a desk on his own was Ray Harryhausen with one of the original skeleton models, and Bill just went up to him and went, "You're Ray Harryhausen," and then he got like a half hour description of, "Yeah, this is how we made the models, and this is how we, you know, when there was that much artistry in, not that there isn't artistry in visual effects, but when there's that much painstaking time and hours of crafting hand labor you know I, I i find it beautiful and and yeah i do i like classic films and, and great storytelling and and you know that that should ultimately you know if, if it's not on the page it won't be in the film and and if you 
if you you know find a, a, a the first port of call really reading any script was is the story strong enough you know is this because however good the characters or the parts might be no one's going to care unless they're invested in a really good story and that's what i felt this was um so yeah that was uh, it was it was nice to be a part of tell, telling the story the interesting thing about a movie like a matter of life and death is and this will connect with the woman in black as well but 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 I, I think that uh, the interesting thing about that is you don't care about the visual effects because you do care about the characters. Yes. And, and I think, as I explained to you last night, when it dawned on me why people felt so strongly about the Potter characters, yeah. because they love those characters. They, yeah. they, love, they love them. They want to know what happens about them. They're deeply invested in them. Yeah. And I think when you go to see a movie like that, um, it, it, it can be quite a, a transformative experience. And I think that the Arthur Kipps character in this film, you feel for. He's a young man who's lost his very young wife, who's got a son that, and I don't want to give anything away here, but he's not ambivalent towards his son, but every time he sees his son, he sees his dead wife. Yeah, exactly. So, so you feel for that. Yeah, I mean, he's. I think James, you know, one of James's strengths as a director is that it's all about character. This is a character-driven horror movie, and he he realizes that it's only there is no value having a character in danger unless the audience care about that character. Um, so yeah, I mean, there was a lot of time. You know, we were we really wanted to get the sense of Arthur's loss running throughout the film. Um, you know, the fact that if anything, because anything upsetting or bad that happens, the first thing he thinks is. God, I wish my wife was here. This would be so much easier if my wife was here. I could cope. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it is, you know, I think it's very important that, and as you say, it's particularly with the Potter thing, you know, when people go and see those films and they are so invested, it, it makes going to the cinema, you know, an event and your body is emotional already. And I think one of the other things James does in here is that he realizes there's, uh, you know, that if he, keeps the audience in a slight state of tension for the whole film when those jump moments happen your body's sort of ready for it and you react even even stronger to, towards it um yeah i mean I, I think james is a is a really really great talent and knows you know he would never be limited to the genre of horror but he is he understands it and really well and knows how to execute scares and also knows how to you know what i love about this film is that one of the one of the things i love is that we the way he just plays with the audience for the first for the first few scares, you're being faked out like three times. Yeah. There's the pipe going off, and then there's two of the crow in one scene. We yeah. get you twice, and and you know that. Uh, but I love that because that's kind of I like that the idea that that's just James's way of telling the audience, yeah, I'm going to be screwing with you for the next hour and a half. <laughs> Welcome to my mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, last night uh, you told me about. Uh, a scene where you're walking down a hall and the first time you saw it you went I'm still walking down the hall I continue to walk down this hallway and it, it, it's interesting because what it said to me when I first saw the movie is that uh, this film's not afraid to take its time to get where it's going because it understands that anticipation it's, is 90 I don't know whatever 99% of horror yeah, absolutely it really is I mean I remember watching that scene and I remember James, I remember James behind the camera going slower Dan slower even slower you know because I'm just walking down this corridor and it does seem like forever but now you you know, you look at that shot and you look at where where the cuts come and where 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 he chooses to cut away to something and cut back to the same shot of me walking down the corridor. It's really well put together and he builds a suspense brilliantly over that moment. And that moment is probably the most universal moment in terms of what people associate, in terms of a moment from the book that is also essential in the play and the film. Right. That that whole sequence is 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 something that real fans of the book will will I think 
recognize and, and love. That was Daniel Radcliffe. Find the woman in black on your favorite streaming service. We're talking horror, and who better to talk to than John Landis, as the director of An American Werewolf in London and the groundbreaking music video for Michael Jackson's Thriller, he knows a thing or two about how to make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. In this conversation, we talk about The Exorcist, The Omen, Ghosts, and one of the scariest scenes he's ever seen in a movie. 90 years ago, Charles Lawton starred in The Island of Lost Souls as Dr. Moreau. He was a brilliant surgeon who performed vivisection on animals with the goal of turning those animals into kind of half-human beings. Here's John Landis on The Exorcist, Things That Go Bump in the Night, and Why the Island of Lost Souls Scared the Heck Out of Him. There's a shot in that movie that I saw it on TV as a kid, you know, that freaked me out and still is one of the creepiest shots I've ever seen in a movie, which is, it's a, an adaptation of an H.G. Wells novella called The Island of Dr. Moreau. It's been made into a film three times, four times, I'm sorry, four times. In the that one, the one with Charles Lawton, who's brilliantly evil in it and sadistic and there's the house of pain, mm, which yeah. is what his experiments call his laboratory because he does all these genetic mutations, all these uh, surgeries yeah. without anesthetic and creates these, muta these beast men. And when the beast men finally revolt and Lawton is you know, beating them back with his whip and he's finally trapped, there's a shot and it's gleaming black and white photography, you know, and it's this white enamel cabinet, medical cabinet with glass sides and glass shelves. And on the shelves are laid out shiny surgical instruments, saws, scalpels, for really ugh, forceps and when the beast men are going to take their revenge on Lawton, they, they pick him up and they push, put him down on the operating table. And then there's just this shot of the scalpel cabinet. I don't know. And it's shattered by hooves and claws and paws. And, you know, they just take the instruments in there and you don't see it, yeah. but you hear it. And I'll never forget Lawton's screams. It's horrifying. It's one of the great horrifying, creepy, horrible moments in cinema. You say that you know a lot about ghosts in the movies. I'm unsurprised by that. But do you think that ghost stories in the movies can be as effective as they are on the page simply because the page demands that you use your imagination in a way that's different if it's being visualized in front of you in a film? Let me put it this way. Film, or I shouldn't call it film, motion pictures and literature, the written word, are two different things. Oh gosh, my wife gave me a t-shirt once that said, read the book, ignore the movie. <laughs> but the truth is, they're extremely different mm -hmm. and they can be equally rewarding. I love books. That's my main occupation when I'm not making or watching a movie. 
I love movies too, but I, <laughs> I really enjoy reading. And reading is a unique experience to you. It's totally individual. Mm -hmm. Where movies, and it's one of the tragedies of COVID <laughs> and technology, but uh, the iPhone, you know, the computer, but movies are meant to be seen on a big screen with as many people as possible. The motion picture is truly like theater, a group experience, because the larger the audience, the more people you see this tremendously large image. You're listening to John Landis on The Richard Krause Show. The more intense the experience. By that, especially in the two, I think, most unforgiving genres, which is comedy and horror because both fear and laughter are contagious. And they both also, this is gonna sound really odd, but they are, when done correctly, <laughs> they invoke a physical spastic response, a laugh or a gasp or a scream. These are these are like seizures. These are out of your control. <laughs> and they're boo like that. And those things, the more people around you laughing, laughing, and the more people around you who are scared. I'll never forget seeing The Exorcist in a theater. Mm. I, I, I went to see it with uh, two friends who are a little older than I, but both had been altar boys. And we're now, you know, lapsed Catholics, but yeah. nonetheless, had been altar boys, which I didn't think about. And I'm, you know, I don't know what you'd call me, an atheist, but, you know, I'm Jewish and uh, Jewish identified. Mm -hmm. And also, I, I like it, too. Um, anyway, when I saw the movie, I do not believe in the devil. I don't accept Christ as uh, my Lord and Savior. When I saw that film any good work of art, whether it's a painting or a poem or a piece of theater or an opera, whatever it is, any work of art, a sculpture, a movie, a book, generates what is called, I think, suspension of disbelief. You're familiar with that, right? Yeah, I am, Maybe. absolutely. Okay. When I saw The Exorcist, during the course of the movie, I bought into everything. <laughs> I believed Satan was in that girl. I was scared <laughs> I really was, oh, and I'll never forget when Max von Sydow, Father Karras shows up. It was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and the, and the, I mean, the whole thing, I was into it. Um, when the movie was over, Jim O'Rourke and George Folsey and I went out for coffee. And we were talking, 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 all excited about the movie. And uh, I went home and slept like a baby. George and Jim had nightmares for two months. Yeah. <laughs> I always felt that the Catholic Church should give uh, William Friedkin some kind of award because, you know, that movie made believers of a lot of people at least well, for two hours. Well, and... It ends with, and we can say it now, good triumphs over evil. That's not giving anything. It's not a spoiler. So you walk out of the theater. You have been terrified. You've got that, um, that, that 
that dopamine hit that you're looking for when you go to see something that's really funny or really scary in the theater. Uh, and it ends, though, with good triumphing over evil. It is, uh, if it hadn't, if it had ended with evil winning, I don't think that movie would have been as successful. I don't think people would have uh, felt the same way about it. Well, you know what was an equally huge hit? The Omen. Yeah. Richard Donner's film. And that ends yeah. with Satan triumphing. Mm -hmm. And that that was a big hit movie. Yeah. So I'm not yeah. sure that that's true. But that um, had Gregory Peck. <laughs> yeah, but he shot down yeah. in a heroic act yeah. of patricide. Boy, that's a strange. <laughs> yeah. That was John Landis on The Richard Krause Show. A big thanks to John. Also a big thanks to David Cronenberg and Daniel Radcliffe. And of course, you can find Ainsley Hogarth's book, Mother Thing, wherever fine books are sold. I'm Richard Krause. Have a happy Halloween. Stay healthy. Stay happy. Stay safe. Stay weird. And we'll talk to you again soon. Mm.